My name is Dario Hasenstab, Ivy Degree in International Affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand Saudi Arabia through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Why are we speaking about this topic today? Um, why are we speaking about Saudi Arabia? Hello, Dario. Well, the first and foremost reason is that only a few days ago, you handed in your master thesis on uh, foreign policy in Saudi Arabia, uh, which is good enough a reason to enlighten the listeners. Uh, the second reason, of course, is that Saudi Arabia is a very interesting example of where uh, the West shows its hypocrisy. We talk in our episode a lot about how the West takes this moral high ground, this position of superiority because of its internal system and its supposed moral values and wax its finger at other countries. But lo and behold, one country that always seems to get away with it is Saudi Arabia. And analyzing why and how that works is a really good case study in puncturing through the Western bubble, if you like. And what are the facts? Saudi Arabia is an absolute monarchy ruled by the Al Saud family, which has held power since the country was founded in 1932. The country is perhaps best known for its massive oil reserves, which make it one of the world's top oil producers and exporters. It is also home to the two holiest sites in Islam, Mecca and Medina, and millions of Muslims travel to the country each year to perform the Hajj uh, pilgrimage. As the guardians of Mecca and Medina, and as a Sunni Arab country, they are rivaled by Shia Iran for regional hegemony. And in the world where oil is quickly losing strategic importance, the Saudis have developed their Vision 2030, aimed at transforming the economy away from its dependency on oil towards a knowledge-based society. What is the bubble? So when we're talking about the bubble in all of this, um, you already mentioned it in the, in the introduction a little bit. There's an incredible level of Western hypocrisy uh, because the comparison that uh, we're going to make further down in the episode is a comparison to Iran, two countries that theoretically have a similar standing when it comes to human rights and to all the values that are very important in Western societies. However, we, tr we treat them fundamentally different. Why are we treating Saudi Arabia so much better than Iran? Well, first, it's, it's probably important to clarify that it's not that they are completely similar in their internal structures or in their values that they espouse. It is, there are clear differences between two countries, but it's almost impossible. I would argue it is impossible to make the case that somehow from a Western perspective, Iran is morally reprehensible and Saudi Arabia isn't. Either you take the position like it's not up to for us to judge, or if you start judging, you cannot make the case that Saudi Arabia somehow is a morally better country than Iran, right? And I think that is the important takeaway here. So that's why that, that, that comparison is so interesting because um, we continuously criticize Iran, Tehran, the Ayatollahs, and we hardly ever criticize Saudi Arabia. And if we do, it's like a op-ed in a newspaper and that's about it. Uh, the obvious difference is that uh, Saudi Arabia is both strategically and economically incredibly important to the West. Um, strategically, it's been a staunch ally, just like Iran was a staunch ally until the overthrowing of the Shah in 1979 and the Islamic Revolution that established the Iranian theocracy. So strategically, Saudi Arabia um, continued being that, that, that partner and that bulwark for the West, whereas Iran lost that position. But obviously, there's also the inevitable oil and the incredible money, not so much just the oil supplies, but the money that Saudi Arabia has as a result of its oil production. Saudi Arabia has almost seemingly infinite amounts of money to spend on Western consultants, on doing business with Western governments, 
And that creates an interdependency that creates not just a dependency from a broad national level, but it creates a dependency at a personal interest level where you've got more and more politicians and consultants and experts and engineers all earning a living by working with Saudi Arabia, which is, of course, not the case with Iran. And therefore, it is so much easier to um, give Saudi Arabia free pass because you know them better. You've got personal connections. Hey, they seem really nice in your day-to-day -day activities. And the Ayatollahs in Iran seem a little bit weird and standoffish and you don't really get to know them and you don't depend on them for your income flows. So you find it much easier to criticize them. Now, that it, it shows that hypocrisy shows exactly that the Western bubble is actually a bubble. It wouldn't be a bubble if the West just decided we're going to have a value judgment on everyone um, uh, because that is what defines us as a West. But it is a delusion that we tell ourselves that we are morally superior. It isn't true. And Saudi Arabia, the case of Saudi Arabia clearly shows that. It, the Saudis are incredibly good at playing the Western game. Uh, that's something that I, I have definitely realized over the past well, past few years by now, um, because uh, so you mentioned the the revolution in Iran in 1979, uh, the same year we had the the siege of of Mecca in in Saudi Arabia, which was a was a huge problem for the Al Saud family uh, because they needed French troops to to basically kick out the the, the, the radicals that were that were occupying Mecca. There was a, a huge mess; many people died, a huge loss for for the Al Saud family, which then pushed them towards the towards the, the the clerics again towards towards Wahhabi clerics so theoretically you have an, an equal push towards uh, towards Islam that is not perceived as well in in, in the West um, as, as one might think and but but you still have Saudi Arabia that is now increasing relations with the West that it's it's doing this well just you know while while basically having having the same religious influence, but the El Sauds have always been very good at playing that game, at simply making sure that the West is continuously receiving vast amount of money, that they are buying weapons, that uh, money is flowing flowing all over the, um, the world into prestigious projects. So this, the El Saud family is very good at playing that game. And it's, it's telling, by the way, that we are talking about the Al Saud family because that is basically Saudi Arabia from a governmental perspective. Uh, politically, Iran is a much more sophisticated and complex country and system. Yes, there's the Ayatollah and the Ayatollahs, plural, but they are part of quite a sophisticated political mechanism with debates, with arguments, with factions, something that you do not see in Saudi Arabia. Uh, you, you may have some princes that sometimes become a bit uppity against the crown prince or against the king or anything like that, but it is... A country, a large, powerful country ruled by one family. It is, I would argue, um, maybe comparable with North Korea, but besides that, by far the most authoritarian country in the world, which supposedly goes against all the Western values that uh, we hear about all the time in Western media. But we rant about China, we rant about Russia, we rant about Iran. We don't really rant much about Saudi Arabia. I mean, Iran is an, is an intellectual heavyweight. Uh, I, I, I counter this time and time again when talking to people from Iran, uh, to intellectuals there. I mean, simply the long history of, you know, that academic type of thinking uh, is very impressive. However, what the Saudis have speaking for them is an army of public relations consultants uh, from the West where they are exceptionally well at making sure that the positive things get highlighted about Saudi Arabia. So while you, you for the last year now, have had protests in Iran against the hijab um, and a very negative perception of Iran, therefore, in the news, the Saudis have managed to, you know, lift the ban on women driving. Um, and, and the world celebrates them for that, which, yes, I mean, of course, it's, you know, a step into the correct direction. But it's, I mean, the, the rights of women in Iran are stronger than the rights of women in Saudi Arabia. It's, um, it's fascinating how this easily gets bought by Western politicians as well, right? I, for example, remember an interview uh, with the 
president of the Comunidad de Madrid, of the basically the Madrid community, uh, Isabel Ayuso, who was asked, she had just gone to Saudi Arabia. And uh, this was, I think, in relationship with football, as it always is in Spain. And basically her story was, well, yeah, we know that there are still some human rights issues in Saudi Arabia, but it is very clear, as shown by women now being allowed to drive and others, that they are improving, they're strengthening um, their uh, moral frameworks, they're improving the way they do uh, business internally, and we would love to be part of that, right? And it just shows how easily the system manipulates and gets manipulated, right? I mean, of course, it's also in, in IEUSA's interest, in Madrid's economic interest to deal with Saudi Arabia. And as long as you can tell yourself that story, look, there's a sign that things are getting better and it's now important that we work with them because then we can improve things even more. It's a wonderful way of sleeping well at night because you can tell yourself the fairy tale that you're actually improving the lives of ordinary Saudis while at the same time, uh, making an awful lot of money. That is not a possibility that uh, Iran can explore or has explored because of the very different history and the result is a tale of two cities basically where the West shows a complete disregard for the complexity and as you say the very long sophisticated intellectual history of Persia, of Iran and somehow acts as if the Saudis are enlightened which is by all Western standards, a bit of nonsense. I think the example of Ayuso is a, is a very good one because it highlights the increased role of personal interests and individuals um, in international relations and particularly the personal interests of people when it comes to Saudi Arabia. Uh, because you have, a, I mean, as you mentioned already, a vast number of engineers, of consultants, that are now working for the Saudi government um, and are seeing all these great changes, but are also receiving a considerable amount of money in exchange. And, and what you see is that they tell, and you and I are both familiar with cases in our own surroundings. Um, I certainly uh, come across quite a lot of them in my work and even certain institutions um, where I work and that you are also familiar with in the, <laughs> in the past. Um, where basically they can tell, they allow themselves to tell these stories that they they say, oh, but um, what we, we believe that Vision 2030, that, that the current approach by Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, uh, the current way that Saudi Arabia is perceiving itself is very positive, Productive. Yes, I understand that not everything is great yet, but it would also be silly to deny that they are clearly wanting to do better. And essentially, that is the same story that you would have heard in the 1980s. That's the same story that you would have heard in the 1960s, right? Continuously trying to tell yourself as a Western engineer, as a Western uh, university, as a Western uh, consultant, you know what? They are on the road up. They are becoming more liberal. They are becoming more democratic. It's a slow process, but my presence helps them in that sense. Of course, that is just a lie you tell yourself in order to receive all the money that you get from the Saudis. I, I think a, a great example of this is um, something that the listeners are probably aware of, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, um, which was... I mean, it's confirmed that this was uh, committed by a group of uh, Saudi nationals, the Tiger Squad, uh, to be more exact, uh, the personal hit squad of the Crown Prince. Personal involvement of the Crown Prince was denied. Um, I don't think uh, the world will 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 ever know whether whether he was involved or not. But there are United Nations reports and CIA reports uh, hinting into that direction. Um, and one of the, I mean, that caused a big reaction. So the killing of a journalist, of a Saudi journalist who writes for Western newspapers caused a huge reaction in the Western world. Um, investments were uh, decreased. There was, there's always this public investment uh, conference uh, in Saudi Arabia, what, what they call Davos in the desert, um, where you know all the big names uh, traveled to, uh, to invest money in Saudi Arabia and make sure that the Saudis also invest money in, in their projects. So right after the killing of Khashoggi, that conference took place and was a huge failure because everyone said, yeah, I don't want to be associated with this. However, a year later, 
all those names were back at the conference. Um, all those names were 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 back, uh, making sure that that that, that Saudi money is, uh, is is coming their way, and that they can, in case Vision Twenty Thirty works out, that they can receive a large piece of that pie. Uh, so I think that's a very telling example of these personal interests and most importantly these economic interests that are at play here when it comes to that well that human rights tra uh, track record that's some theoretically something you should care about um, and people always say they care about but only for a year because you know people forget and what's very interesting is that that moment that murder um, was indeed a, a moment of reflection for both the west and for Saudi Arabia itself, for Riyadh, because it was the new crown prince who seems to take it too far, um, basically to mess up things, uh, to mess up this carefully crafted narrative that Saudi Arabia continuously creates with respect to the West. And it was such a brutal example because it wasn't just a murder of a journalist, it was a murder of a journalist who worked for the Washington Post, which is a beacon of Western liberal democracy. So it's something that couldn't be denied by the West. And that was one of the very few instances in which there was a sustained Western diplomatic breakdown with Saudi Arabia, uh, where the media for a number of months went very much after Riyadh because of the symbolic powerful nature of this murder. Also, the, the torture, the audio tape came out and we, we you could hear the torture of this person. However, um, in the end, those personal connections that we just mentioned, the power of money, the power of influence. And again, it's not so simply the dependence on oil because the West is less dependent on Saudi oil than it's ever been in the past. But it very much attracted to the enormous amounts of money that Saudi Arabia can spend over time wins out again. Right. So we lose our moral outrage in the case of uh, Khashoggi. It was very quick after a couple of months. And then slowly things going back to normal. And now in 2023, things are absolutely back to normal. Consultant after consultant, conference after conference, diplomat after diplomat does business with Saudi Arabia again. Uh, yeah, let me let me quote Richard Branson um, because I quoted him for the thesis as well. Uh, for the listeners who don't know Richard Branson is, I think, one of the richest, if not the richest uh, British national. Um, he's also one of the billionaires who wants to go to the moon for some reason. Um, and he uh, is a close contact of uh, the Crown Prince of MBS, uh, you know, on texting basis. Um, and and afterwards, uh, texts were were leaked by him where he he commented on on the murder uh, that this is a that this was a stain that would would take a while to wash off. And I think that is very telling of the of the attitude that the business and investment world has towards Saudi Arabia is that this is a stain. And it will take some time to wash off. You know, I'm going to step down from uh, my the very you know luxurious positions that I have within the Vision 2030. However, I was still on texting basis and keep it up, buddy. It's it's gonna it's gonna stink for a while, but then at some point we'll be fine again. Just throw it in the washing machine. Um, don't don't make any other clothes dirty, and you're you're gonna be you're gonna be fine again. And that example is interesting for another reason, because, of course, Branson, you would think, OK, look, I mean, he's rich enough. He can do without Saudi Arabia in terms of uh, his own living standards. However, more and more in today's world, there is this integration of the economic elites. And it's not just the top billionaires with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, but also the, the layer below that, let's say the top 10 percent in the global economy that is more and more connected to each other and forms more and more their own little neoliberal bubble, if you like, that disconnects from the rest of society, from other realities, and that feels very comfortable with itself. So I'm sure that MBS, I mean, I've never met him and I'm pretty sure I never will. Uh, I'm, I, I'm sure that MBS could be a very charismatic, nice guy if you have a coffee with him and if you're Richard Branson and you think, you know, he's not that bad and he's he's young, he makes mistakes. And this is how that top elite incestuous kind of 
dynamic works, right? Where people meet each other and they see another human being, they get along, they're both really rich, they're both really comfortable with the way things are going, they, they slap each other on the shoulder and say, well done, um, let's work together. And all those people criticizing for you from the outside, they're being unfair on you and they do not know what they're talking about. And I would argue that that is one of the biggest dangers that the world is facing, that ever closer top 10% or 5% of world of world economic elites that just do not understand how far up the bubble they are. Uh, which goes back to our episode we recorded on inequality. So I would summarize the, the bubble uh, with regards to Saudi Arabia, um, the Western bubble, that we care about morality and values, but only when it's convenient. Um, so against Iran, you know, business uh, and economic interests have been reduced over the past 20 years. So it's a lot easier to criticize uh, the Ayatollahs. While we have personal in involvement, economic involvement, strategic involvement as well. I mean, we, have, we haven't really looked at the strategic uh, level yet, uh, but we'll do that uh, later on. Um, that involvement is, is a lot. So it's not as convenient in that moment to care about morality. Is that, would, would, you, would you summarize the bubble like that? Yeah, and it's, I mean, one part of the general Western bubble on top of what you're saying is that we find it difficult to understand a world that doesn't think like us, but in certain cases, when money comes into play, when strategic interests come into play, then we don't really, um, then we don't really care about that anymore, right? So whereas we have an inherent a deep, and I think it's a it's a genuine kind of bias against a country like Iran because we don't understand them. They're different from us, and we believe that we're the right ones on the deterministic path to a brighter tomorrow. Uh, with Saudi Arabia, we shut down our logical faculties. We shut down our critical faculties, and we just go with the flow because it is the comfortable thing to do. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? So now that we're talking about the damage for this episode. And may maybe I should be asking you the questions here, Dario, because you've just submitted your thesis and you're way more of an expert on this topic than I am. Um, so uh, when it comes to foreign policy and damaging um, foreign policy by Saudi Arabia in particular, uh, what are some of the issues, the items that you've written about? Uh, I mean, before you've taught me that uh, the word expert is used way too much in today's world. And uh, I wouldn't know at what point I qualify as an expert in Saudi Arabia. So I'm going to choose the word specialist um, <laughs> because I've uh, specialized on Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia in the last six years. Um, and maybe to give some context about what I actually wrote about with the thesis. Uh, so I compared Saudi regional foreign policy uh, in the last 20 years uh, because at some point uh, in the last 20 years, there was a turning point when you saw very hawkish Saudi foreign policy. Um, and at some point, well, that point was pretty much the Khashoggi killing. Um, Saudi foreign policy changed. And uh, the topics that I wrote about, which I think are particularly interesting, uh, will definitely be Iran. Um, then Yemen, I don't think we can, can get around Yemen. It's very telling of today's world that we are only talking about Yemen in minute 23, 24 of this, of this podcast. Uh, then the Qatar blockade. And uh, last but not least, one of my personal highlights of the thesis, uh, just because it is so ridiculous in what type of a world we live in, it is when um, Saudi Arabia forced the Lebanese prime minister uh, to resign. And 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 those those cases um, do they have a common thread? Did did you notice common patterns in in the way that Saudi Arabia handled them, and maybe also the Western reaction to it? Well, so when it comes to the to the common thread, uh, I think I read this out in the fact sheet uh, that of course Saudi Arabia feels very threatened uh, by Shia Iran, simply because right after the revolution. Um, the, the Ayatollahs started targeting Saudi Arabia because they reject the monarchy, they reject the way they preach Islam. Um, so you've always had these two countries kind of heading it off against each other. There was always a lot of tension, which only really escalated in 2003. 
after, and we've recorded an episode on this, um, the United States invasion uh, of Iraq. Uh, when the US took out Saddam Hussein, someone who was always balancing um, kind of the, the power dynamics within the Middle East, uh, where um, Iran could not really strive for bigger and greater power in the Middle East because they had Saddam Hussein um, to the West and because they had the Taliban to the East and the United States took out both of them. Um, and that's the moment when Saudi Arabia became very concerned because that meant that US strategic interest in the region was no longer aligned with uh, Saudi strategic interest in the region, meaning uh, keeping, keeping Iran far away from its borders and uh, not influential in, in the Muslim world overall, but particularly in the, in the Sunni Muslim world. So Iran is definitely that one common factor within all, within all these battles, proxy battles, one should say, in the Middle East. And, and from Riyadh's perspective, is Iran also then the key element in determining their strategy at the local level in Yemen, in Qatar, Lebanon, anywhere else? Is, is, is Iran the issue, the, the, the rival that Saudi Arabia obsesses about? Yes, definitely. I, I would be a bit careful calling it strategic um, because... I, See, that's the problem when you, I mean, what you also described earlier, there's a proper policy making process within Iran. You don't have that process in Saudi Arabia. You have um, the king, you have the crown prince, and you have princes, some very influential princes, and they kind of talk about foreign policy and make decisions. However, if the king wants to, he can just do whatever he wants. And this has very much happened um, in, in most of these cases. And particularly, we see this with the rise of the crown prince of MBS, um, where you've had aggressive foreign policy throughout the region before. You know, the Saudi Arabia intervened in Bahrain uh, to basically put an end to, to the Arab Spring there, but also over fears of Iran. You've had the Saudis intervene in Yemen in 2009, uh, very early on, but really just because their border was really threatened by the Houthis. At that point, you don't really see Iran yet. So there you have a... One could almost say, yeah, an aggressive foreign policy, but still within within limits. And this starts to escalate once the crown prince, uh, well, is trying to rise to power and is actually using uh, foreign policy to, to rise to power. And this is very interesting from the Western bubble perspective, because you have the crown prince traveling through the West, particularly through the United States, presenting his vision 2030 as a reformer, as someone who's giving women the right to drive, as someone who's opening cinemas, um, hugely celebrate all over the United States. He meets with the president. He meets with all the big shots in Hollywood and uh, in, the, in the US economy, Jeff Bezos, with whom he was on texting terms, uh, Bill Gates, Oprah. You know, you, you know the world is ending when Oprah is meeting with the Saudi crown prince. And he's young um, and a fresh face and well-spoken. All of, all of the all of the above, um, and there's this you know there's this sense within the West. Okay, this is going to be the reformer. He's going to bring a huge change. And I mean, I personally was also very swayed by him in the beginning, uh, based on these reforms. That's because I believe I lack the experience from the '80s. Uh, kind of that this is a reoccurring theme within within Saudi Arabia. But I definitely saw a a reformer. However. I could also see, and then particularly in Yemen, that this man used foreign policy to rise to power and to establish himself within the royal family. And here, uh, Yemen is something that makes me incredibly angry on a personal level in, in today's world, because it's one of the worst humanitarian crises we have in this we have we have, we have in this world today. Um, Twenty six million people are like are threatened by starvation. Uh, you have an incredible amount of civilians uh, that are that are dying uh, throughout this conflict, and the reason behind this is that the Saudis felt threatened by the Houthis um, within Yemen. Uh, so you have the Saudi-backed government that is obviously Sunni, and then you have the Houthis, which are closer to Shia Islam, um, and then you have. Iran starting to meddle in the country as well, not to an extreme extent, one might add. Um, and then you have the crown prince deciding in 2015 that it would be worth to intervene. Let's call it intervene. That's the official official speak. Um, Yemen. Others might call it an invasion. Um, but yeah, so you have Saudi Arabia putting together this coalition of 
the willing, um, and they, they launch an, an intervention with, with airstrikes, and importantly, um, Western support. So Western intelligence support, uh, Western logistical support uh, against the Houthis. Maybe it's um, given that we mentioned the Crown Prince, uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, so often, it might be good to remind the readers that, first of all, the Saudi king is essentially on his deathbed, um, is no longer really capable of practical policymaking, um, but also that traditionally the crown prince is the power, the executive power base in Saudi Arabia, right? The crown prince is sort of the director to the chairman of the king, of the of the monarchy. Um, what is different about this current crown, crown prince rising to power, becoming crown prince versus the traditional way of Saudi crown princes rising to power? I mean, the, the traditional way in Saudi Arabia is since the original leader, even Saud, um, who founded Saudi Arabia for the third time, one might add, um, in 1932. Uh, so since since he died, it has always been the direct sons of, um, of him. And there are many. This man fathered, I think, 50 plus children, uh, many of them sons. And so it was always the, the crown prince was always the next son in line. Um, sometimes there was a bit of a disagreement. Some, sometimes brothers didn't agree necessarily that someone would be the right fit. Um, but there is this council of, of senior princes uh, and they basically decide succession. Um, and this was obviously going to be difficult at some point, uh, given that the uh, so King Salman now is 86 or 87 years old. Uh, he's, he's rather old and as you said, he's not in very good health. There's a lot of talk that he has dementia. There's a lot of talk that he's not capable of running the country. And his next younger brother is only two years younger than him. So that's not necessarily your ideal crown prince. So you've had this almost vacuum in Saudi Arabia for the past six years, where there were, it, it was clear that a new generation of princes would, um, would basically take over the throne. And there was a lot of very intense fighting within the royal family, whose lineage continues. Um, so would it be the lineage of King Salman, or maybe some of his older older brothers that already died? Because keep in mind, you have a lot of senior princes in power, and the crown prince was um, uh, Mohammed bin Nayef, um, a very you know, close friend of the United States, worked here for the longest time, um, very good re relationship with, with Western allies, and a very experienced prince. Um, in his at that time in his fifties, and um, well, then you had the deputy crown prince uh, bin Salman, uh, Mohammed bin Salman MBS, and um, so now you have him trying to take that away from the more senior prince, causing huge problems within the royal family because that's simply not how it goes. Um, so that's when you see him using foreign policy to establish himself. And then uh, this basically peaking in 2017 uh, when, well, you, it was, I mean, there were multiple waves of purges, but when he starts arresting all princes that are against him over corruption charges. What's very interesting about this is that uh, it's not just a standard infighting, though, because he is much younger than you would expect, given that in a system where you've got such a huge family, having an old crown prince means that that old crown prince is less threatening to future generations, right? But all of a sudden having, how old was he when he came to power? 30, 31, something like that? 31, I believe. Uh, uh, when he came to power, that all of a sudden means that if he establishes himself, if he manages to do what you uh, mentioned in 2017, then he might as well rule the country for the next 50 years, which means that two generations can say goodbye to controlling the country in the future, right? Yeah, exactly. But he did this in a in a very, I mean, from a coup perspective, this was a perfect coup. Um, he arrested all all of the all of the senior princes and all everyone who could be a threat to him on corruption charges. Took all of their money away, and I mean, when we say arrest, he arrested them in the Ritz Carlton. Uh, so it's, I mean, there was torture involved, one might add, but it's still the Ritz Carlton. Um, so so you have this, and at the same time, through the intervention in Yemen, which was perceived as a success at first, because you have 150,000 ground troops, you have airstrikes, air um, the, the Saudi Air Force is out of, the, out of all the fields in Saudi Arabia is one of the strongest ones. 
Um, so you have a huge success at first. MBS assumes more power. He's now Minister of Defense, uh, so he controls the army, but he now also um, controls the Royal Guards, uh, which are theoretically there to balance uh, that, to balance the army and the Royal Guards. But now he controls basically everyone in the country with a gun. Um, and then he you know, continues his path of very aggressive foreign policy, where now that Yemen theoretically is a success, and I say theoretically in big quotation marks here because, yes, the Saudi Air Force is, compared to the Marines and compared to their ground troops, the best. However, if you compare this to the standards of the rest of the world, they still don't really know what they're doing. And most importantly, they can't. They weren't able to differentiate between civilians and Houthi fighters. So you have huge, enormous amount of civilian casualties through Saudi airstrikes. Uh, we're talking about, well, secured at 15,000. It's probably more. Um, so you have this, and this is where you start seeing the damage. And when I say the damage, um, let's take this back, back to the Western bubble. You have the West supporting this. So you have the United States giving intelligence support. You have the French giving intelligence support. It support to thousands of civilians dying. And not just supporting, but also approving, right? The yeah. Obama White House, President Obama, gave permission to Saudi Arabia, to Mohammed bin Salman, to actually do this. And now turn, turn forward two years when President Trump comes into power. Uh, who's a, who's a big fan of the Saudis, and I think this is where the Western bubble is is the easiest to perceive, because the the Saudis and I can uh, I can only recommend one of the books I read for my thesis here uh, called Blood and Oil. Um, I, I I will make sure to put it into the into the description of this of this episode. They play the Saudis play Trump like a fiddle. It was amazing. They knew exactly what to do with him. Um, they created, you know, big parties. Great picture opportunities. They signed big symbolic, like symbolically big agreements, many of which did not capitalize afterwards. Um, it was also a great uh, show of the Trump White House at the time, which I mean, nobody knew what 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 anyone was doing there. So, so the Saudis play Trump like a fiddle. He approves of everything they do. Most importantly, he approves of of MBS. Three weeks later, he moves up from deputy crown prince to crown prince. Now, arresting Mohammed bin Nayef. Um, you know, the actual crown prince, one of the more senior princes. So in the first wave uh, of basically purging Saudi Arabia from anyone who's against him. And this further emboldens him uh, in his foreign policy choices. And this is when you start seeing the Qatar, blo uh, Qatar blockade of 2017, when out of nowhere, um, the, the, uh, the, the, the Gulf countries and the Gulf monarchies and some, some other Saudi allies start isolating Qatar diplomatically, economically, all the lease, um, basically on every single level. And why? Well, because Qatar was getting a little bit too friendly with uh, Iran. Also, the Saudis don't like how successful Qatar has been in its own foreign policy, in Al Jazeera in particular. They, they you know, have a long-standing antagonistic relationship, right? Qatar and Riyadh. They do, um, not only about uh, Qatar's relationship to Iran, but most importantly, Qatar's relationship to the Muslim Brotherhood, a grassroots political Islam movement, which is in some ways, this is debated even with, with democratic elements, uh, something that, especially right after the Arab Spring, um, was absolutely threatening the Saudis because they do not want political Islam. They only want political Islam if it works in their favor, if they can use Islam to exert their power. But as soon as people are you know, trying to get more political rights in Gulf countries in particular, that makes the Saudis very, very nervous. And so what do they do with respect to Qatar? What is their, what is their actual policy in 2017? Difficult question. What's their policy? There wasn't a policy. That was the problem. So you have this blockade, um, diplomatically, economically, um, and nobody knows what they want. And so that so there's no policy. Uh, it, it took them three weeks um, to develop a list of 13 demands, which were absolutely ridiculous, outlandish, basically telling Qatar to stop having an independent foreign policy, closing down Al Jazeera, and most importantly, uh, agreeing to monthly monthly uh, evaluations by the Saudis, making sure that Qatar complies. So you can see a little bit here, it's, it's, it, there wasn't really a policy. It was very much the crown prince being very emboldened by President Trump, 
uh, MBS uh, told Trump, hey, the Qataris are really a pain in the ass and um, they're, they're evil. <laughs> and Trump said, okay, take them out. And there wasn't a policy in place. And how, how does the years. rest of the West react to this? Because Al Jazeera is a popular news source for a lot of people in the West. Uh, it's often seen as sort of a more um, objective alternative to what is seen as, as as Western bias of the BBC or CNN or anything like that. So how did the rest of the West react to this? Divided. Um, so, so the United States, well, the White House was very much on board with this. The rest of the establishment within Washington was very concerned because the United States has a very big military base in Qatar, um, so very concerned. Um, but there wasn't an outright condemnation um, because the Saudis very quickly told the world, well, Qatar, uh, Qatar is financing Al-Qaeda, they have very close relationships to the Taliban, they are evil, um, no longer do anything with them, uh, on top of the fact that Qatar is hosting, well, at that time, was going to host the 2022 World Cup and just did a few months ago. Um, so the the world didn't really care. I do remember uh, on, a, on a personal basis that Germany sent 5,000 cows um, because, uh, well, actually didn't send salt uh, because, again, Saudi Arabia cut Qatar off from everything. And Qatar is hugely dependent on imports from Saudi Arabia. So they didn't have, they didn't have anything. They didn't have milk. So they built uh, big farms uh, very quickly and the Germans sent 5,000 cows. But uh, it's clear that the West, even though this seemed to be a completely outlandish kind of approach to a much smaller nation, the West didn't take an aggressive position against Saudi Arabia in this case. Uh, not at all. N not at all. Um, and and, and yeah, there, there really wasn't any any reaction. And then this, the only time when then came a reaction to Saudi foreign policy behavior was obviously at some point the West realized that Yemen was not developing the way people thought it would. The humanitarian crisis became more evident. The failure of Saudi military become, became even more evident. And that's when you start seeing, um, you know, European countries, at least, uh, withdrawing their support. The United States kept their support uh, until Biden uh, came into office, who then very quickly took, well, diplomatic support, but also intelligence and logistical support away from the Saudis. And let's move to Lebanon then, because you already uh, introduced this as your favorite example. Um, what, what, what happens in 2017 with respect to Lebanon? So in 2017, you have the Lebanese Prime Minister Hariri, um, whom is, by the way, is Saudi citizen. And that's very important. He's Saudi citizen. His father was also Prime Minister in Lebanon. And his father was also a very successful businessman in Saudi Arabia. A very close friend to the royal family. And the Al Saud family always believed that they could rely on the Hariris. Um, Hariri, uh, so junior, uh, then in 2017, made a mistake where... I don't know, depending on how much our listeners know about Lebanon, it's a very complicated power-sharing system between Sunni Muslims, Shia Muslims, and Christians. And Hariri dared to talk to Hezbollah, um, a radical extremist organization. I'm really trying to avoid the Western term terrorism here. But the, um, but, and but, actively supported by Iran, right? Exactly, actively supported by Iran, and Hariri dared to talk to them. He even met... Uh, with one of uh, Ayatollah Khamenei's advisors uh, who tried to, to come and mediate as well. And this was unacceptable to MBS in particular. Uh, again, it's him. So they invited Hariri to Saudi Arabia and he thought of, you know, one of visiting my friends, um, probably getting some business deals, some money to, to help solve problems at home. Um, and it became clear at some point that he, yes, he was invited to come there, but he wasn't allowed to leave. Um, so the Saudis, uh, well, the Tiger Squad, again, the, the ones that later on dealt with Jamal Khashoggi, um, they didn't allow him to leave and forced him to resign um, with a lot of physical and financial pressure. And then you see this video, and I can only recommend to the listeners to actually go and watch this video, where Hari is standing there, and you can clearly see a frightened man uh, resigning from his position as prime minister in Lebanon. Um, so, so the Saudis effectively forced another country's, another sovereign state's you know, prime minister to resign. 
and that, uh, that that went on. And here it was the first time the Western reaction was different. Um, and in, in particular, your French president Macron, who you know, the French always feel a little bit responsible for Lebanon because of their colonial history, uh, who tried to basically negotiate for Hariri's release. Um, the Saudis said, no, he's here voluntarily. And this was then only solved, and this was a bit of an embarrassment for the Saudis, when uh, Macron invited Hariri and his family to France and said, well, if he's free to leave, then why won't he leave? I invited him and I would love to talk to him. And only then the Saudis would let him go. Uh, Hariri came to, came to Paris uh, for a few days, then went back to Lebanon and immediately annulled his resignation. It should be pointed out as well that uh, Hezbollah, talking to Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, is very different from the Western perception about Hezbollah, right? Because this is a hugely influential political organization. Whatever you think of their policies, their uh, ideology, it's very similar to, in many ways, Hamas in Palestine, where uh, the West often thinks of Hamas as a terrorist organization, but Palestinians see Hamas as a political movement that also sponsors hospitals and it sponsors charity work. and all kinds. Similarly to that, there is Hezbollah, um, a hugely powerful force in uh, Lebanon, and the idea of a prime minister talking to Hezbollah is, should not be anything out of the ordinary, right? Not at all. Um, however, for the Saudis it was. And uh, so this is... Now, this is kind of the third example of MBS in particular, um, the once celebrated reformer who basically received a blank check from President Trump, um, going full on crazy, if I may say, in, in the Middle East. Again, a terrible, terrible toll it took on, on Yemen. He didn't achieve anything in Qatar. Um, actually, it was the opposite. Qatar was pushed closer to Iran and Turkey. Um, and... Well, in 2021, and this is also what I def defined as my turning point uh, in my thesis, uh, after the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, you do see a change in Saudi foreign policy, um, where the reaction to this killing was so intense, and it also highlighted then aggressive Saudi foreign policy in the region. Not that anyone did anything about Yemen, um, but there were simply a lot of, like, like uh, yeah, a lot of attention paid to MBS actions uh, in the region, and that kind of then you, you observe this shift. And since then, Saudi foreign policy has changed. And now, um, if we look at, for example, Yemen in 2023, Saudi Arabia positions itself as the peacemakers in Yemen all of a sudden, right? They position themselves as the peacemakers, and even worse, everyone agrees. Um, so there is this. <laughs> there was this session in the United Nations Security Council, um, and through the bench, everyone highlighted and applauded the constructive role of Saudi Arabia as the mediator in Yemen. Um, where then I, I, I want to call BS on this and say, one second, how can you be the mediator if you're one of the war parties? Um, but that's something that the, the world doesn't really care about. But it, it, it shows, once again, the Western approach to Saudi Arabia, that they're desperate to sort of embrace Saudi Arabia again, right? Like the, the Richard Branson quote of, this is a stain, on your legacy, on your policy making, um, the the West is desperate to wash off that stain from Saudi Arabia. Whereas if Iran had had a year like two thousand and seventeen, it would have been ten years of embargoes, boycotts, and diplomatic pressure on Iran. But with Saudi Arabia, the moment their tone shifts, and the moment that MBS seems to learn some of the lessons, the West is very very happy to embrace them again. The comparison of, with Iran works perfectly here again. I mean, you've now had this year of um, the Ayatollahs cracking down very violently on the protests, on the uh, anti-hijab protests. So you and you see the West rallying up, everyone, you know, rallying up against Iran. However, especially after uh, President Trump um, basically left the, the Iran nuclear deal, um, you saw Iran trying to be very constructive. Uh, with the European partners, with the United States, trying to get another uh, nuclear deal on the table in some some shape or form. And that wasn't applauded at all, as, as, as you would expect if it had been the Saudis, but it was actually the opposite, kind of saying, ah, this is, this is one of those devious attempts of the Iranians to blind the West. Uh, they will never really change. So... Um... Once again, Saudi Arabia very pragmatically knows how to play this game towards the West, but there are no actual real signs of enlightenment in the country, right? 
that I would say is difficult to tell, um, simply because the this period of changed foreign policy has only been two years now. Um, based on their historic record, I I would be I would be careful to express this, but it's really up to kind of the next few years to see how how long will this change last and how deep will this change actually go? Is it is it just making peace with Yemen, but and implementing a ceasefire in Yemen, but still bombing uh, <laughs> the Houthis. Um, so that's a sign of nothing has really changed. Um, or, I mean, the, the recent agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, to try to be more constructive in the region, how long will that last? Um, I'm not sure whether there has been a real change within the Al-Saud and MBS attitude towards towards the world. I don't think that there has been a sudden moment of enlightenment. Oh, you know, killing is bad. Let's not kill. Um, but that there's a realization that these tactics have not been working in, in favor of the Saudis, um, but have actually worked against Saudi interest. And this is also kind of the conclusion I came to in my thesis, is that uh, this aggressive foreign policy was hugely detrimental to MBS and most importantly, his vision 2030. Um, so that's the reason why he changed, but not necessarily because he believes that, oh, what the West has been telling me from day one, you shouldn't kill journalists, that that is something that I believe in now. And what now? And yet the West will happily continue to take those breadcrumbs that are given to them in order to continue their very uh, enriching, to put it like that, relationship with Riyadh. I, I think so. And I mean, it's a, also from a PR perspective. Uh, it's a lot easier, right? If you go from no rights for women, um, no rights for minorities, no rights for anyone, to women are allowed to drive, women are allowed to work. Um, are women allowed to work because I feel like they should work? Hmm, maybe the motivation is that I need more of a Saudi workforce and I need them to pay taxes very soon. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure whether whether those changes are, are heartfelt. However, they look very good on paper. Well, so this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on Saudi Arabia. Uh, thank you very much for sharing all this, I want to call the expertise, because that's what you didn't want to call it, but specialization um, because of your thesis and six years of hard work. If you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to the Western Bubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. This is it from my side. Dario, which closing quotes did you pick for us today? This feels like such a weird moment that I have to present a quote now. Um, but in light of, of what we've talked about and Western hypocrisy, I think it would only be right to uh, quote Jamal Khashoggi. We should not need to be reminded of the value of human life.